At Wildwood Community Church, we are for following Jesus together to the glory of God. We're for the church, for the community, for the nations, and for the next generation. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. If you have been with us the last number of weeks, you know that we've been walking through the book of 2 Corinthians. And specifically, over the last several weeks, we've been in 2 Corinthians chapters 4 through 7, where we've been talking about how we can endure on the mission that Christ has called us to, not just to serve Jesus for a few weeks in college or in our young adult life, but how do we follow Christ and honor Him and be on mission with Him for all the days of our lives. We've been seeing that perspective from a number of different verses in 2 Corinthians chapters 4 through 7 over the last number of weeks. Today we're going to be in the seventh part of this series as we're going to begin in the middle of chapter 6. But before we do that, I want to tell you just for a moment about a place that I really like, a place really that I kind of love. You know where it is? It's an airport. Now, I know that might sound a little strange to some of you. Anybody else love airports? Okay, there's like 10 of us. That's great. I'm not alone in this moment. I I love airports, and I love airports not because I like overpriced food and not because I love to wait, but I love airports because of the potential that exists in an airport. You show up, and you get on these amazing machines that will take you someplace you want to go, and that's exciting. As a matter of fact, when you go to an airport, it's one of the few places you go in life where you know people have a purpose to be there. Those of us who love airports can't just go there and hang out, right? We have to have a ticket. We have to have purpose. There has to be a destination in mind. And so people at airports are very much on mission. We don't get distracted from getting on the plane that will take us where we want to go. But let's just imagine for a moment that you do go to the airport and you do have a mission. You have a place where you're going to go. But in the security check-in line, you begin to strike up a conversation with someone else. And so you're just kind of chatting it up with them back and forth. And, you know, you get through security and you end up in such a great conversation that you follow them all the way, not to your gate, but to their gate. You're wanting to go to New York and they wander over to O'Hare. But the conversation is going so well, let's just imagine that you just get lost in the moment and you eventually walk onto their plane and not yours. At what point will you kind of come to your senses and go, wait a minute, how did I end up here? You see, the truth is, friends, those that we most closely associate with can influence our destinations. So we must be careful where we find our identity or those that we hang with might pull us to a direction or a place where we do not want to go. Now, the chance of that happening at an airport is not very good. But the chance of that happening in our lives and our relationship with Christ actually happens all the time. Where we have a mission, we have a purpose We've been called to live for Christ and to spread everywhere we go a knowledge of him. And yet we look up and those that we're hanging out with, those that we're spending time with might begin to pull us off of that mission in another direction. Friends, the Apostle Paul writes in 
2 Corinthians chapter 6 to warn us from allowing others to take us off the mission that Christ has called us to. And so this morning, what I want to do is I want to look at part 7 of this series as we look at chapter 6, verse 14 through chapter 7, verse 1. I want to begin by reading these verses for us, and then after I read them, we'll back up and make a couple of observations before we celebrate the Lord's table together. So 2 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning in verse 14, says this, "'Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever?' What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Since we have these promises, beloved, Let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Now, friends, in these few verses, I want us to see two things today about enduring on the mission that Christ has called us to and not getting distracted in some way. The first thing I want us to see is this. Don't allow others to co-opt the mission. Don't allow others to co-opt the mission. Now, we see this in verses 14 through the first part of verse 16. Now, you may not be familiar with all of the verses in 2 Corinthians, but there are a few that you have probably heard before. And my guess is the beginning of verse 14 is a part of 2 Corinthians that you have heard before. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. How many of you have heard this verse before? Yeah, it's a fairly famous section of this book. Now, we are familiar with it in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, but do you know which book of the Bible this statement is alluding to? There's an allusion to an Old Testament statement that is here. Does anybody know what it is? It's from Deuteronomy. Very good, Steve. Um, it's from Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy chapter 22 and verse 10, you shall not plow with an ox or a donkey together. You shouldn't take a, an ox and a donkey and pair them up for work. Now, you might think, wow, that's really deep. Was there there some extra meaning in that? Well, no. In Deuteronomy 22, there are a number of statements for how society should work in the Old Testament, and God's giving some very practical advice in that section about mixing different kinds of fabrics, but also mixing different kinds of animals for labor. The, the, The point seems to be that if you take an ox and a donkey, you should not make them work together. Why? because they're really different animals. The ox and the donkey are fundamentally different, and they will not work well together. They will move at different paces. They're good for different things. You should not take an ox and a donkey and yoke them together for work. Now, that's the point in Deuteronomy 22. But here, Paul is using it and taking that picture and applying to it a a spiritual purpose or meaning. Paul says that we must be careful of taking two things that are fundamentally different and tying them closely together because if you do, they will not 
stay on task. They will not stay on mission. The return of their work will be poor. Well, what are the two very different things that he is comparing? Well, when we look at verses 14 through 16, we see he's talking about the differences, friends, between believers and unbelievers. By believers, we're talking about those who have placed their faith and trust in Christ. They have become a new creation in him. If you are someone who has placed your faith in Christ, then you are a new creation, and you are the believers that he is talking about here. And he is contrasting them with those who have not yet placed their faith and trust in Christ. And what Paul is saying here is he says, there is a fundamental difference between believers and unbelievers. Believers have been declared righteous in Christ. God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God. We saw this just a few weeks ago. The light of Christ is shining through us. That's true of those who are believers. They are in Christ. We are in Christ. We're believers in God, and we are the representation of the right worship of God. We are his temple in today's day and age. Contrast that with those who are unbelievers. Unbelievers are associated not with righteousness, but with lawlessness. Not with light, but with darkness. Not with Christ, but with Belial. Now, this is a little bit of a hard phrase to understand, but it sure seems like he's talking here about Satan himself. Unbelievers worship God not according to truth, They worship something or someone in some kind of errant way as if worshiping idols. Paul says there's a fundamental difference between believers and unbelievers. Therefore, be careful in taking a believer and an unbeliever and yoking together because there will be this opportunity and temptation to be pulled off mission. Now, what is it that Paul is actually doing here? What is he actually referring to? I really think there's a couple of options, and and there may be more, but there's at least two options of what Paul is, is really saying in these verses. The first option is that he was just pausing to proverb. In other words, Paul is writing along this letter And all of a sudden, this epiphany of of something really cool, something really important, this amazing proverbial wisdom that Paul needs to share, that he stops the argument he's making in the letter, and he says what he says in verse 14, and then he will continue with his letter in the argument that he's making later on. It's possible that Paul is just overcome in the moment and pauses to proverb. Now, if, if that's the case, if he paused to proverb, It's possible that what he was trying to encourage them is to be careful in their business partnerships, as if to say, hey, because believers and unbelievers are heading in fundamentally different directions, be careful, Christian, from gathering with non-Christians and forming deep alliances like in a business partnership because you're headed to different places. Or he might be saying, Hey, believer, because you are in Christ, because you are marked by his righteousness, do not marry someone who is an unbeliever. Do not yoke together with them in marriage because you are fundamentally different and you're headed in different directions. It's possible that the Apostle Paul paused to proverb and had these kinds of meanings at the front of his mind. Now, I 
actually don't think that either of these applications are bad. I actually think that they are consistent with the principle we're going to see. But the question is, is that how Paul got there? Was that at the front of his mind? I actually don't think it was. I think that Paul actually had a bigger point to make than just talking about business partnerships and even marriage. I think what Paul is getting at in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 14 is he is actually continuing his argument. He's continuing the message that he is writing to this church. And so we need to be reminded of the message that Paul is giving. See, Paul is writing this message, and throughout this letter, he is commending himself to them. See, after Paul had left the city of Corinth, opponents had come in after him who were trying to lead the Corinthian church away from Paul and towards another leader, towards another purpose. They were trying to confuse them. They were trying to discredit Paul. So again and again and again, we've seen in this letter, Paul was sharing with them and reminding them of his connection with Jesus and of the ministry that he worked among them. This is a common and a consistent theme of the entire letter. And it shows up even in the immediate context of chapter 6, verse 14. Remember what we saw last week. As we ended last Sunday, we looked at verses 12 and 13, where the Apostle Paul says to the Corinthians, you are not restricted by us, but you are restricted in your own affections. In return, I I speak as to children, widen your hearts also. He's encouraging the Corinthians to widen their heart for him, that they might stay together, that they might not wander off to other leaders who he's even going to call in verse 14 as unbelieving leaders. But they are to stay faithful to Christ and faithful to others who are following Christ. Not only does he say that before he gets to verse 14, but after this little interlude, he's going to come back to it. Next Sunday, we'll see in chapter 7, verse 2, how the Apostle Paul begins that section. He says, make room in your hearts for who? For us. Paul says, friends, stay connected to me and don't allow these unbelieving influences to infiltrate the church and take you off mission with Christ. Allow Jesus to stay in the cockpit. Stay on the plane with those who are following him and don't allow others to distract you and to take you off course. That seems to be his point. Paul warns them not to box him out and welcome in these unbelieving leaders. Now, who were these unbelieving threats that existed in the church in Corinth? Well, there really were threats from the right and left. And and another way of saying they were were threats all, all around, and they came from different directions. One set of opponents who were seeking to lead the church in Corinth astray were this group that we'll call Jewish religious legalists. Everywhere Paul went around the Mediterranean as he was planting new churches, Jewish non-believers followed him and tried to capitalize on any movement that had happened to pull people away from Jesus and towards this expression of the old covenant. Corinth was no different. And so, in some ways, Paul was saying, hey, stay true to me. Don't allow these Jewish religious legalists to, to pull you off mission away from Christ and towards their agenda. But also, it's possible that he was referring to the pagan religious syncretists, 
Now, that word syncretist, not a word we use very often, but syncretism is when someone takes a little bit of this religion and a little bit of that religion and kind of melds them together. And apparently that was happening in Corinth, the city where there was a number of different temples to other gods. In fact, in, in these temples to other gods, there were dining rooms where they would have dinners and festivals. In Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, he talks about eating meat sacrificed to idols and all of these kinds of things. That was a real deal for them as worship for these other gods were happening around town and they were being invited to participate. They had to make decisions about what they were to do. And it's possible that these pagan religious syncretists had infiltrated the church and were trying to draw the Corinthians away. So whether it was from the right or from the left, whether it was from the Jewish religious legalists or the pagan religious syncretists, there were other unbelievers who were seeking to influence the church in Corinth. And what they were trying to do was to take them away from Christ and his mission. So we might summarize this idea of not being yoked with unbelievers with this concept. Stay connected to churches and church leaders who are truly following Jesus and allowing Jesus to set the mission. Now, we don't live in Corinth. We live in Norman. And as we live in Norman, we, we might think, well, we don't have you know, the, these pagan syncretists in, in the same way that they did, and, and, and I, we may have never met a Jewish religious legalist, and so we, we think, what in the world would this have to do with us? What are the things that we are tempted to yoke to? What are the unbelieving influences that we are tempted to yoke to today? Well, I'll share with you a few. The first one I would share is this political power and leaders, political power and leaders. There is a temptation in this day and age in, in, in a country that loves its politics, right? It's sport for us. It's, it's something that we follow. It's possible for us to get so enamored with political perspectives that we adopt a political leader outside of the church and we begin to follow them even over and above Jesus, that we might become more affiliated with donkeys and elephants than with the lamb. Friends, we need to be careful from allowing a political power or a political leader to gain sway over us and set the agenda in the mission. While we may agree in certain areas with certain candidates, our ultimate allegiance is to Christ and not to one who is in office. And so we must remember that. I think about how this has played out in history, and I'm reminded of what happened in Germany in the 1930s. See, not only had that country caved to this Nazi ideology, but it had impacted the church. And the official German church that was running under the banner of the name of Martin Luther had begun to try to convince their participants that Nazism was okay because they had bought into the lies of the political leaders that they had allowed to infiltrate the mindset and the worldview of the church. Not all German pastors in that era were, were swayed by such arguments. There was one man by the name of Martin Neimoller who said this on the 450th anniversary of Luther's birthday. He said this, he said, how tragic it would be if the devil filled German minds with the delusion that what they needed was not the grace of God, but the courage of Martin Luther. 
There is absolutely no sense in talking of Luther and celebrating his memory in the Protestant church if we do not stop at Luther's image and look at him to whom Luther pointed, to a Jew, a rabbi of Nazareth. Because of this statement, Nymoller was defrocked and kicked out of the Lutheran church. But friends, it's an evidence of what can happen if we take a political leader and we yoke to them instead of staying faithful to Christ. We can get pulled off mission. That's one temptation for us to be yoked to. But there's a second one. Second temptation for us to be yoked to is popular ideas or relativism. There is a temptation today to just look at the culture and, and, and lick our finger and put it up in the wind, and wherever culture is blowing, we will accommodate because ultimately we have yoked to culture in some way. And when that's the case, we begin compromising on biblical stances of truth because ultimately we are allowing the world to set the agenda for the church. We must beware of such things. Kent Hughes says this, he says, the, the spheres, unbelievers and believers, he said, the spheres are mutually exclusive. And that is why Christians must never allow themselves to be yoked to and co-opted by would-be leaders who oppose the gospel within the church. Those who accommodate culture, misuse the Bible, abuse divine worship, in front for the ethics of popular culture. Friends, we must not yoke to the culture. We must continue to yoke Christ. There's a third temptation, though, and that is the temptation for us to yoke to gifted leaders, even to unbelieving gifted leaders. Because someone is, is, is really good with an instrument or because someone can speak well or they're super nice, there's a temptation for us to platform them inside of the church. But it's amazing how when we look at the qualifications for Christian leadership, it begins with character. It begins with fidelity to Christ. The lists in Titus chapter 1 and 1 Timothy chapter 3 for, for elders inside of the church are, are filled with character calls. That's what matters the most. We need to be careful of looking at someone's just skills and having that be what drives them into leadership. Again, Hughes says this, he says, this is a call not to give those who would presume to lead and teach the church a pass because they are nice or theologically educated or gifted or related to us or have grown up in the church. Countless churches have fallen from within because godly leaderships have yoked themselves and their congregation with an unbelieving pastor. Often it has been the pastor's son or a favorite son of the church returned fresh from a prominent theological institution where he quietly discarded his faith, but retained his religious vocabulary, redefined for his own purposes, and has learned ecclesiastical craftsmanship. He is pious, disarming, smiling, but unbelieving. Friends, inside of these verses, I believe there is a prominent call for us to not allow the mission of the church to get co-opted or hijacked by those who are not Christ. So what might we think about this in terms of a call for us? Well, the first thing I would say is, as a church, yoke to Jesus and no other. This would be the commitment that we have at Wildwood, for better or worse, 
to the best of our ability, imperfectly lived out at different times. We want to yoke to Christ and to no other. You know, Jesus said, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly at heart. Friends, we've been invited to walk and to work and to be on mission alongside of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Why would we ever yoke ourselves to another? Second thing, as individuals, beware of significant partnerships with unbelievers. Uh, This goes back to that first understanding. And, And again, I don't think that's primarily the emphasis of this section. I think he's talking here mostly about the church and church leaders, but I do think it's an appropriate application for us in our individual lives. When we think about those that we would want to marry, find someone who is headed in the same direction you are with the same Savior that you have. If you find yourself in a marriage where you have married someone and one is a believer and one is an unbeliever, Paul actually writes in his letter to the 1 Corinthians in chapter 7 to stay married to such a person, that you would love them and serve them, that ultimately they might come to know Christ themselves. But if you are considering marriage, you're considering marriage, may you consider the, the candidates for your spouse among those who are set in the same, set in the same direction as you are. And so we see that we are not to allow others to co-opt the mission. But there's a second thing that we need to see here, a second important truth, and that is this. We need to patch the holes in our holiness. We need to patch the holes in our holiness. Now, when we talk about holiness, most often we think about the holiness of God, and that is true, and that is right, and that is good. That is where we should begin. God is holy. We are sinful. And mostly when we talk about holiness, we talk about how God has declared us righteous in Christ. Again, we saw this a few weeks ago in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21, that God has made us the righteousness of God. We who are sinful have been made righteous in Christ. But there's another aspect to holiness, an aspirational aspect to holiness, a directional aspect to holiness that we should live our lives consistent with who God has made us to be, that we should put effort into following Christ in honoring him and having our character shaped in godly ways. This is what we see in chapter 7, verse 1. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Now, this, this point, I talk about patching the hole in our holiness, that actually comes from the title of a book by a man named Kevin DeYoung. In, in the introduction to that book, DeYoung talks about the Puritans, and he says this. He says, I'm challenged by the Puritans in this regard. I know you might hear Puritan and imagine a perpetual party pooper who has a sneaking suspicion that someone somewhere is having a good time. Anybody have that perspective about the Puritans? He says, but the real Puritans were not like that. The Puritans did not invent that name for themselves. They didn't call themselves the Puritans. Their opponents coined the term because they thought the Puritans were so intensely focused on being, well, pure. The pursuit of holiness does not occupy the place in our hearts that it did in theirs. Friends, sometimes we need to step away from our cultural moment for just a second and be reminded of the call that we have to holiness the call that we have to 
the living out our faith, the call that we have to be sanctified as we grow across our lives. And this is something that is to grow. He says that holiness will be brought to completion, that it would be developed over time. There is a declaration of righteousness at the moment of our faith, but our practice of righteousness, how we reveal righteousness in our decisions and reactions and actions, that's something that should grow over time. But sadly, it does not. Hughes again says this. He says, the great tragedy for so many is that they get older, but they don't get any holier. Time has been the enemy. They left their moral apex in junior high school. They were better boys than they are men. Holiness is farther from completion. The demand for holiness is fearful in the fear of God. We will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Knowing this fear, we must work at bringing holiness to completion. If you took an honest assessment of your life, do you feel like your experience of godliness in your practice of holiness is developing or is it receding? What is the normal Christian life? Well, what God intends is when he sends his spirit to reside within us, it's not just to make us warm and fuzzy. It's to transform us from the inside There's a process of sanctification that God intends in each of our lives that holiness might be brought to completion in our lives as we follow him in faith. And all of this is based upon the promises of God. Love how he begins this verse, since we have these promises. Well, what promises? What promises? Well, the promises he just talked about. From verses 16 through 18 of chapter 6, Paul kind of is going to quote a number of things from the Old Testament or allude to a number of things from the Old Testament. When you look at those verses in your Bible, you probably see that they are indented. That's a telltale sign that these are quotations or allusions to the Old Testament. But the question is, what is the passage that he is quoting? Well, scholars look at this and see at least six different allusions to Old Testament verses from places as far flung as Leviticus and Isaiah and Ezekiel and Hosea and others. What's the point? Paul here is basically sharing with us the Old Testament's greatest hits on promises from God, and he highlights two. The first one that he highlights we see in verse 16. For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them, and I will walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Why should holiness come to completion? Because God has shown up, because God has moved in. This room right here is not a temple. Your lives are temples of the living God. And we as believers, when we gather, whether it's in a small group in a home or whether it's on Sunday morning in this room or a Sunday school class, we are reminded of God's presence among us. And because God has shown up, it should translate to a way that we live our lives. Not only do we see a promise of God showing up, but we also see in verses 17 and 18 the nature of God's relationship with us. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Love this statement because it reminds us that God doesn't just show up God shows up, and he is our father, and we are his children. 
We have a close relationship with him. Therefore, we should have a desire to honor him with our lives. And if we have been made new in Christ, then hopefully the family resemblance will show up as we live our lives in connection and relationship with him. See, based on the promise that God is present and based on the promise that God is our father and that he loves us and we love him, there is an expectation of taking holiness to completion. So in light of those promises, how might we respond? Well, a couple of things. The first direction I want us to look at is this. Cleanse ourselves from every defilement. Cleanse ourselves from every defilement. What are we ingesting into our lives? What are the things that we are allowing to take nest in our lives? What are we listening to or watching that are causing us to say things, to think things, to do things that are contrary to God's will? What these verses tell me is that we should give no safe harbor for the things in our life that are leading us away from God. We've become far too content with filth in our culture, in our lives. May we walk away from those things, cleanse ourselves from those things, that the most dominant influence in our lives is Christ and his word and his spirit. Cleanse ourselves from every defilement. What needs to be removed from your life, from the influence list of your life as you follow Christ? Second thing, keep maturing in holiness. What a sad statement in the quote earlier that some were more godly boys than men. That's not gender specific. There are others who are more godly girls than women. Are we developing and growing in our holiness? That's God's intention. The holiness among us really should be those in their 80s who have walked with God for 60 years that haven't coasted for a decade or two because they have been consistently and continually following, following Christ and trusting in him. Friends, are you continuing to grow and mature, not just in your ministry skill and not just in the verses that you've memorized, but in your practice of holiness? Friends, God has, has called us to such things. He's equipped us to such things. May they be true in our midst. May we patch the holes in our holiness, and may we endure on the mission that Christ has called us to. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, thank you. Thanks for this challenge from your word today. Lord, may, may we be people who stay yoked to you and following you. Lord, that we would not allow other outside influences to take us away from you, but that we would stay on mission with you all the days of our lives, and we would see you transform our lives into a greater experience of holiness in light of who you are and what you're doing. We thank you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.